Our passage this morning comes from Job chapter 6, is Job chapter 6, because it's been uh, several weeks since we were in Job, I'll just remind you of the context. Uh, Job 6 and 7 is Job's reply to Eliphaz. Uh, Eliphaz, he, he replies to Eliphaz as if Eliphaz is speaking for all the friends, which he assuredly does. Job had given great complaint to his agony. Remember, he had lost all his wealth, all his goods, but not only that, all his children in a moment of great uh, disaster uh, that, that was calculated to worry him about their spiritual state, that was calculated to, uh, to appear to be from God's anger and, and uh, wrath against him. Not only that, afterwards he was afflicted with boils and uh, sores, and he is still in that condition. Uh, we need to always remember that Job is not giving these words uh, from the, the comfort even of misery, but in the constant uh, itching, scratching, oozing discomfort of, of a bodily, fleshly disease. And he gives, in chapter 3, great uh, vent to his anguish. He desires that the day of his birth, or conception even, be cursed. uh, That he had not been born, or that failing all of those things, that he could die now. To which Eliphaz, one of the three friends that had come to comfort him, uh, rebukes Job in the the excessiveness of his complaints. He implies to Job that Job is suffering justice and he should take the chastisement of the Lord as an opportunity to repent. And we know because of the prologue to Job that Job is innocent, that Job is not suffering because of his sin. It's not to say that he is sinless, but he is faithful always uh, to repent and, and to go to the Lord and make reconciliation, that Job stands in his integrity of his relationship to the Lord. And so we will look at this chapter. Uh, we're going to separate chapter 6 from chapter 7. We're going to look in this chapter uh, at Job's complaint to his friend's counsel, his defense, if you will, and even his rebuke at at the manner of Eliphaz and his friend's way of comfort uh, that they bring. Before I read the passage, let's go to the Lord in prayer that he would bless the reading and preaching of his word. Our Father and our God, we come before you now. We come to sit at the feet of, of these words that you inspired by your Holy Ghost. These words that you gave us for our infallible instruction. And we ask, dear Lord, that we would indeed be instructed infallibly, that we would be built up in Christ, that you would give us your Holy Spirit, that these words might find a teachable heart, that we might take it to heart, that we might uh, draw that wisdom that you would have us draw from it, that we might see the glories of our Savior in it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear now the reading of God's holy word from the sixth chapter of the book of Job. But Job said, Oh, that my grief were thoroughly weighed, 
and my calamity laid in the balances together. For now it would be heavier than the sand of the sea. Therefore my words are swallowed up. For the arrows of the Almighty are within me. The poison whereof drinketh up my spirit. The terrors of God do set themselves in array against me. Doth the wild ass bray when he hath grass? Or loweth the ox over his fodder? Can that which is unsavory be eaten without salt? Or is there any taste in the white of an egg? The things that my soul refused to touch are as my sorrowful meat. Oh, that I might have my request, and that God would grant me the thing that I long for, even that it would please God to destroy me, that he would let loose his hand and cut me off. Then should I have comfort. Yea, I would harden myself in sorrow. Let him not spare, for I have not concealed the words of the Holy One. What is my strength that I should hope? And what is my end that I should prolong my life? Is my strength the strength of stones or my flesh of brass? What if I have no help in me? Is wisdom driven quite from me? To him that is afflicted, pity should be shown from his friends. But he forsaketh the fear of the Almighty. My brethren have dealt deceitfully as a brook, and as a stream of brooks they pass away, which are blackish by reason of the eyes wherein the snow is hid. What time they wax warm, they vanish. When it is hot, they are consumed out of their place. The paths of their ways are turned aside. They go to nothing and perish. The troops of Timah looked. The companions of Sheba waited for them. They were confounded because they had hoped. They came thither and were ashamed. For now you are nothing. You see my casting down and are afraid. Did I say bring unto me or give a reward for... Of for me of your substance, or deliver me from the enemy's hand, or redeem me from the hand of the mighty? Teach me, and I will hold my tongue, and cause me to understand wherein I have erred. How forcible are right words! But what doth your arguing reprove? Do ye imagine to reprove words and the speeches of one that is desperate, which are as wind? Yea, ye overwhelm the fatherless, and you dig a pit for your friend. Now therefore be content, look upon me, for it is evident unto you if I lie. Return, I pray you, let it not be iniquity. Yea, return again, my righteousness is in it. Is there iniquity in my tongue? Cannot my taste discern perverse things? Here ends the reading of God's holy word. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord abides forever. And his people said, Amen. Amen. This is uh, the substance of, of Job's uh, first sally against uh, Eliphaz's counsel. Now, Job does give us the assurance that he is approaching this with a teachable heart. That he doesn't want his friends to hear him in defiance of sound reason. That's why towards the end we, we have in verse 34, Teach me and I will hold my tongue. Calls me to understand wherein I have erred. How forcible are right words. Uh, but what doth your arguing reprove? Uh, and, and why he uh, gives them to, to consider uh, what is in him. Is there any iniquity in my tongue? Verse 30. Cannot my taste discern perverse things? 
So he's defending himself so that they might refine their their instruction so that they might come back to the table so that they might try again at their their efforts to comfort and mourn with Job and even to be an instruction to him if he has indeed erred. Uh, Job is not casting away his friends. Job is 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 saying though that what they have said in Eliphaz has not been anywhere near comfort, has not been anywhere near instruction, but has only been to add fuel to the fire, to add misery unto misery. We should remember that there is nothing in the prologue that talks about Satan's work to, to bring Job to, to, to curse God and die that says he stopped with the boils. Satan is prohibited from taking Job's life. Everything else Satan can do, and Satan can bring even friends who, uh, whose counsel are perhaps well-meant, but misplaced, to make that also part of the trials that Job will deal with. We're going to go through really quickly, hopefully, uh, the different paragraphs of chapter 6 to show what Job is doing with them. You can divide Job into two main parts, of Job chapter 6 into two main parts, verses 1 through 13, verses 14 through 30. And verses 1 through 13, is, it's a defense of his grieving words. Uh, he starts off uh, telling, him, telling Eliphaz that his complaints were not overly wrought. That, that his griefs were not common, ordinary, run-of-the-mill griefs. This is an answer to the way that Eliphaz himself began his rebuke of Job. If you turn back to chapter 4, if you look at verses uh, 3, 4, 5, and 6, uh, Eliphaz kind of chastises Job for being, uh, frankly, a, a hypocrite or not being able to hear his own instructions. Behold, thou hast instructed many. And thou hast strengthened the weak hands. Thy words have upheld him that was falling. And thou hast strengthened the feeble knees. But now it is come upon thee, and thou faintest. It toucheth thee, and thou art troubled. Is this not thy fear, thy confidence, thy hope, and the uprightness of thy ways? Uh, The the implication is is that a physician, heal thyself, is uh, you are not following your own instructions. You have been a comfort to the grieving and Job's reply is, I have comforted many who are in grief, but these are not just mere griefs. These are not just mere trials. These are not, these are not the sorrows that come to one in the everyday working out of one's life. These are uh, severe, and indeed they were. All his children are extinguished. Uh, in those days, it would have been bad enough if he lost all his sons and, and then in his uh, clan's uh, line would have been wiped out even though his daughters would have brought up family members that would have loved him. And, and that would have been one thing. But uh, the text is very clear that Job lost both his sons and his daughters there. And he was not a young man. He had adult children with their own homes. There wasn't going to be a starting over. And he recognized that these were, as far as he knew, arrows direct from God. The worst part of it all was not just the grief and the the hardship of losing uh, 
uh, one's wealth. Uh, certainly not just, but, but this is a big part of the grief over his children. Uh, not just the discomfort that was in his body, but the fact that he perceived them to be arrows from Almighty God. That they were strikes against him. That he was under God's wrath. Verse 4. And they were not arrows that just pierced and did their work. They were poisoned arrows that constantly ate away at him and were constantly there working their misery. And he sees them as the terrors of God arrayed against him. This is not just your normal trials or afflictions. Job's complaint was not... His troubles that he endured were worse than his complaints. Verse 3, the second part, Therefore my words are swallowed up. My words were clunky, Eliphaz. My words were the words of a distressed man. But understand, my words did not exaggerate my miseries, but fell quite short of my miseries. So, and he'll come back to this when he rebukes Eliphaz in just a moment. We'll come back to it too. But I want to, to go in sort of the, the order that it is there. Um, that his complaint wasn't without cause. Uh, the, the, the donkey, the, the ox, they don't cry out when they're being well fed. They cry out when there's a problem. His crying out wasn't because uh, it, it was just some slight inconvenience. He was crying out because he was desperate. And what they gave him was food without salt, was the white of an egg, uh, was sorrowful meat on sorrowful meat. That's what he was enduring. And his desire for death. It was neither irrational nor blasphemous in his mind. Now, we have to understand when we look at Job's words, that Job is not... The, the issue with Job is not that he doesn't sin, even in his own defense. And I'm not saying that Job sins here. I'm not implying that he does. But we do want to, to um, make a way... In a certain sense, Job himself makes this clear that he is speaking out of desperation. Everything might not be perfect, but nevertheless, there is a reason and a rationale there. Remember, God justifies Job's words and does not justify uh, his friend's words. Remember that the goal also of Satan is not that he would make Job sin. Uh, the issue of whether Job was a sinner or not it was a moot one. Job was a sinner, like every human being was. The question was, were he, would he curse God? Would he turn against his trust in the Lord? And Job says that when he was seeking death, there was none of that blasphemy. There was none of that irrationality there. Oh, that I might have my request and that God would grant me the thing that I long for, even that it would please God to destroy me, that he would let loose his hand and cut me off. We should recognize that this is a much more calm, rational sort of request than what we get in chapter 3. He is he's a little bit reflective. He is a sort of, he's not changed the content of what he requests, but he changes the way it's given. By the way, this is not suicidal. 
He is not seeking to end his life. He is seeking that the Lord would bring his life to an end. Uh, Many of you, all of us, have had family members, uh, perhaps in very great age and with great sickness. And we have seen that that any sort of joy in life and and a possibility of of improving it has completely gone and that death comes not as a joyful thing but nevertheless as something that ends sorrow that ends misery and and it is not uh, it is it is not wrong when those that can see clearly the end of their days, that they, end, that they request to end their days in the peace of God, that they request to end their days in a way that God would, uh, that would be in league with God and in the comforts of the Lord. Paul himself, we just looked at Philippians not that long ago, says... You know, it's better for me. I would rather be with the Lord than in the body. But right now I'm doing the Lord's work. And so better in the body than with the Lord. But nevertheless, he looked upon going to the Lord that he looked at the possible outcome of his first imprisonment of Rome as an execution to be something not to be despised. Thankfully, he wasn't killed just then, but he would eventually end his life uh, in a Roman prison. It wasn't blasphemous. It wasn't irrational. Uh, For one thing, there was no rebuilding his life as long as the Lord was against him. Verses 11 through 13, what is my strength that I should hope? You know, even if I get rid of this bodily disease, what can I do with my life now? I have no wealth. I have no children. I'm not made of stone. I'm not made of brass. I am rational, verse 13. Is not my help in me and his wisdom driven quite from me? He can see what what is valuable. He can make that judgment. But also, and more importantly, he has a clear conscience. Even though he perceives that his trials come from the hand of the Lord, he knows that he stands in integrity. And this is very important. Look at verse 10. Then should I have comfort. Why God bringing destruction on me should not be even a greater worry. Why is that? Because I have not concealed the words of the Holy One. You are trying to make me out to be a sinner, and God's correcting me. If that were the case, then bringing on the judgment and the ruination of God without repentance would be even worse. It would seal a never-ending misery to me. I'm not saying that Job has a fully fleshed-out concept of the eternity of hell. Uh, But whether, he certainly doesn't have the scripture that would point in that direction. Uh, This is, uh, even if this is not one of the earlier uh, books written, it's certainly set in in our time before the Moses. And he wouldn't have the firm, found that he would have maybe assumptions and hopes to resurrection. We see that he is confident in a resurrection in chapter 19, verse uh, 25 through 27, his hope is that though the worms destroy this flesh, yet will I see my Redeemer in the flesh. That's important to the hope of Job. It's important to understand that though he recognizes that God 
providence is against him. He doesn't believe God is bringing him into judgment. And that gives him a certain bit of hope. And that is why his friends trying to get him to repent and admit to being in the wrong is so devastating to Job. Because he has one little bit of integrity. He has one little thing to hold on to. I've been faithful. So whatever God is doing, and I don't understand what God is doing, I want him to explain himself. I don't understand it. But whatever it is, I know that I have not transgressed against the Lord. And whatever happens to me in this life, it won't follow me after it. That is a great comfort. And that is why when Eliphaz says, you ought to repent, good advice. We ought to always repent. But when the only thing Job has is his integrity, and Eliphaz tries to take that away, it would leave Job with nothing. It would put Job exactly where Satan wants him, to curse God and die. And so he he does it. He holds on to it. Now, that's not the largest part of what he does. He also rebukes his friends. Uh, he, he reminds his friends that they are there to be friends. And that the denial, especially amongst friends, the denial of pity to a friend in misery is an act of impiety against God. Verse 14. To him that is afflicted, pity should be shown from his friend. But he forsaketh the fear of the Almighty. When, that is, his friend, when he doesn't show pity. He's not just uh, uh, not fearing the friend and, and lording it over him. He's forsaking the Lord's ways. He is turning against God himself. Eliphaz had implied, and the, the other friends will make explicit uh, their accusation that Job is impious and lacks fear of God. But Job is the first one to bring that and put it at the feet and does so with good biblical grounds that Eliphaz is the one being impious. That Eliphaz is the one that has lacked fear in the Almighty by assuming to prejudge Job and accuse Job of what Job is not guilty of. And in so doing, they prove false comforts in a needed season. Verses 15 through 21. Uh, it is a long, it's the longest uh, section of this uh, passage. Uh, he, and it's one of the ones that's most uh, a little confusing to us because it's not part of our everyday lives. Uh, but this is a desert land. And he says those friends are just like uh, the, the little wadis, the streams, the brooks uh, that are appear in the wintertime. And they're covered over with ice and they have snow and they look like they'll be substantial. So you mark out where they are. And then when you are leading a caravan or a troop across the wilderness in the summer and the hot months, you go looking for them and you find out their past, but there's nothing there because they have dried up in their empty ditches. They were coming and they had the promise of comfort. They had the promise of wisdom. They had the promise of love and compassion. And yet when Job needed those things, they're a dried out ditch. There was no quenching of the thirst. There was no relief to be found in them. And therefore, verse 21, uh, they are nothing because they have seen his misery. And instead of going into that misery, 
and, and, and communing with him and bringing him up. They started well by just sitting there in silence for several days. They started well, but they've drawn back in fear and what it might mean. He didn't ask their counsel. Verse uh, 22 and verse 23, he didn't ask them to come and comfort him. They came. Uh, so it's intent upon them to actually do what they intended and he says, as I mentioned before in 24, 25, uh, that he would, he would give them an attentive ear. But what he got was quibbling at desperate words. Verse 26 and 27. Do ye imagine to reprove words and speeches that, of one that is desperate and which are his wind? You overwhelm the fatherless thereby and you dig a pit for your friend. This is, by the way, this is one of the constant problems and dangers of giving advice to a friend and giving comfort to a friend and rebuking a friend. That we are not, we don't pause and we don't listen and we don't put ourselves in that misery. And then our good advice, as good as it may be, if it is, if it's not given in the deepest uh, bits of love and compassion, they become a heavy handed axe to chop up. Job acknowledged his words were his wind. They were the words of grief. The complaint is, is that they pick out the extreme of his expressions and they hammer on that instead of looking at the larger picture of his actual misery that he is suffering. That they ought to pause and listen to him again. Verses 28 through 30. Be content. Look upon me. It's evident to you if I lie. If you'd only give ear, if you'd only hear me as a friend. Return, I pray you. Let it not be iniquity. Yea, return again. My righteousness is in it. Is there iniquity in my tongue? Cannot my taste discern perverse things? I desire to be heard as a trustworthy friend without prejudice. And you haven't given me that. It is actually my right as a friend to you. Now... That's the passage that we have before us. What are the lessons that we, we can draw from it? First off, we, we see by, by what is negatively pictured here, the positive doctrine, the positive instructions of what true friends are to be. True friends are friends in our worst moments. Verse 14, To him that is afflicted pity should be shown from his friend, but he forsaketh the fear of the Almighty. Psalm, uh, Proverbs 17, 17, A friend loveth at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. Or the next chapter over, Proverbs 18, 24, A man that hath friends must show himself friendly. And there is a friend that sticketh closer than a brother. A friend loves at, at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. Uh, ben Franklin, I think, is the one that said, A friend in need is a friend indeed. It may have actually been Matthew Henry. Sometimes um, Ben Franklin... Um, Plagiarizes there. Not really. I never really understood that um, because I misplaced the, the, as a kid, it was always a confusing statement. So, for kids that might not know what that means, a friend in your time of need is a friend indeed. Um, oftentimes, a friend that is in need can be a friend indeed later on, but that's not always sure. But a friend who is a friend to you in your time of need is a true friend. 
It's easy to have good time Charlies. It's easy to have friends and people that will come around you when everything is going well. And I would say that Eliphaz and Bildad and... and um, I forget the guys, the other guy's name off the top of my head. It starts with a Z. They showed themselves possibly good friends. I think they meant well. I think the evidence that they meant well is in the fact that God gave them the reconciliation through the mediation of Job. And Job did do that. But it is not easy work to be a true friend. And it's a very it's a it's a precious thing to have true friends. Proverbs tells us in verses eight Proverbs eighteen twenty four that if we want true friends, we have to ourselves be friendly. That means that we have to those that we know in adversity, we have to be not less but more friendly to them. Because anything anything that Job rebukes his friends for, he ought to be taking it as a lesson for himself. Withholding mercy is a sin against God's mercy. Uh, John tells us, 1 John 3, 16 and 17, that, that we know the love of God because Jesus Christ came to die for the ungodly. But he brings it down to the small things because it's easy to say, yeah, I'll die for my friends. But it's really hard to, to suffer for our friends. He says, you who have this world's goods and see your brother in need and shut up the bowels of compassion against him, how dwells the love of God in you? It doesn't. If you can't suffer the little things for your friend, you won't suffer the big things. Uh, James says, Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted for the world. In other words, those that were helpless and can't repay, the fatherless and widows in those days, fatherless oftentimes even this day, those that you show mercy to, knowing that you can never, that mercy will never be repaid to you. That's true religion. That's true friendship in Scripture as well. Friends reinforce and build up the good. They don't nitpick at desperate words like Job mentions in verse 26. Well, they should have grabbed hold to that confidence that Job had in his integrity. For I have not concealed the words of the Holy One. Verse 10. And that should have been their, their, their emphasis. To build up that which was good. The fact that Job was still going to the Father. The fact that Job was putting his case and his misery before the hands of Almighty God. Should have been something that Eliphaz emphasized. He got close to it. In chapter 5 he did say in verse 8. Although the implication was that Job wasn't doing this, I would seek unto God, and unto God would I commit my calls. If that had been the substance of what he had said, he would have come out a lot better. We ought not to nitpick at little things. There are minor offenses that are actually offensive to notice amongst our friends and those whom we love. Uh, the proverb says in Proverbs ten twelve, Hatred stirreth up strife, but love covereth all sin. Peter in 1 Peter chapter 4 verse 8 uh, rephrases it, says, Love covereth a multitude of sins. That doesn't mean that love is somehow redemptive, at least our love for our neighbors, that we can get rid of our neighbor's sin through love. It just means that those little things that are annoying and, and are offensive to you, we don't hold it against them. We don't hold grudges. 
We ought not to be holding any grudges, but certainly not on little annoyances that often come between friends, that often come between brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus, that often come between husbands and wives or brothers and sisters in the family. Love takes on the other's good as its own good. When they sat there in that quiet, they were doing what they ought to have done. If they had held their tongue, they would have done a whole lot more than what they actually did in speaking. Paul, describing love to the, uh, to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 13, 4-7, says, Love suffers long, is kind, Love envies not, love vaunts not itself, is not puffed up, does not behave itself unseemly, seeks not her own, is not easily provoked, thinks no evil of the other, rejoices not in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, not credulous, but puts everything in the best possible light, hopes all things, endures all things. If Job's friends had been doing that, they would have been friends indeed. But they weren't. But this leads us also, when we find the shortcomings here, shortcomings of righteous and wise men, to look to God's own provision in these matters. And we see that there is no truer friend than Jesus Christ. What Job grasped at we, under the gospel, have a firmer foundation of. Because Jesus is the one that secures the foundation of a good conscience. Is he not? There is no righteousness that can measure up to God's righteousness, except the righteousness of Jesus Christ, who did not sin. And yet you and I, by faith, don't stand before God in our own righteousness, but we stand clothed in Jesus' righteousness. So if God is for us, who can be against us? He who gave his own son for us, will he then withhold anything from us? No. It, there's not anything that can lay, uh, there's, not, there's nothing that can be laid to charge against your conscience if Christ has stayed in your, uh, has stood in your place to be punished by you. There's nothing Satan can accuse you of. This is that deliverance from sin that Jesus did upon the cross. This is what we get at the end of Romans chapter 8. He is that secure of a good conscience. And because of that, we can, even in our imperfections, trust in the Lord to be kind and merciful to us, to deliver us, to hear us in our agony, and to give us, if not exactly what we think we need to get out of that agony, to give us at least grace sufficient to meet those trials that He will not abandon His people. That even when He frowns upon us, even when it seems like the arrows of the Almighty God, poisoned arrows, are in our flesh and eaten us away, that that same God intends to do us good just as He did good to Job. And He's gentle. You know, there are times when Jesus does rebuke us. There are times when Jesus has to be uh, not just our, our kind Savior, but also our disciplinarian and the one that does indeed chastise us, yet He does so with those that are His with gentleness. In Matthew chapter 12, verses 18 through 21, Matthew writes, 
that Jesus fulfilled that which was spoken by Isaiah in Isaiah 42, 1-4. Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he shall show judgment to the Gentiles. He shall not stride nor call, neither shall any man hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed shall he not break. Job is a bruised reed. He's on the, the point of breaking. And his friends are, are stressing that reed to the, to the end. A smoking flax will he not quench. Job's candle is just about extinguished. There's very little left in him. But Jesus won't snuff it out till he send forth judgment unto victory. And his name shall the Gentiles trust. It's important to remember Job himself is a Gentile. Job himself is not of the people of God. And what we see in shadows and agony in Job, we get more clearly in Jesus Christ, who came to us not as righteous people offering a more righteous life, but particularly came to the sinners. That promises justification not to the one that can boast of great works, but to the one that can boast of nothing and beats upon his chest, have mercy upon me, a sinner, O Lord. And he will show him mercy. He put himself in your place, as we read together in Hebrews chapter 2. That we might know that he was tempted as we are, that he, we might know that he's not coming in pre- prejudice, he's not coming with the assumption of weakness, that he knows those weaknesses full well. He has sat with us, In our misery, he has taken upon himself our weaknesses. He who thought it not robbery to be considered equal with God made of himself nothing. Eliphaz didn't do that. Our friends can't do that. We can't always do that without the grace of Jesus Christ. But he did that without sin that we might boldly rely on him. Hebrews chapter 4, what we are called to worship. Therefore, we can go boldly, knowing that He is our help in time of need. I'd say that as part of the lessons that we ought to be true friends. If we want friend, friends like what, as Job describes them, and as we have in Jesus Christ, we ought to be that friend to others. We also have to, to remember That that integrity, a good conscience, is a precious thing. We can't snuff it out in another by assuming the worst. It's why love believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And we ought not to let others snuff it out of us. Because that is our connection to the Lord. That is our hope and our confidence, and it's important. And we're not alone in these things. Job had to face his trials alone. That was part of his trials. But the way that the Lord has designed things, we are a church, we are a body, friends are important. We believe in the communion of the saints. That means that we share the burdens of each other. That's what Paul is talking about when he tells us to bear one another's burdens in Galatians. It is what he means when he talks about Christ, the head of the church, and we are all members individually, working for the good 
of the whole together that we can do in the grace of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we come before you this morning in the name of Christ. We do ask that you would, that you would show us our true friend in Jesus Christ. And that you would give us by your Spirit that grace to be true friends to those in misery and affliction. We ask, dear Lord, that we would persevere in our integrity and that we would not lose it. We ask, dear Lord, that we would submit all things, though, to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.